HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Hello, this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and uh, we got a big show today. I'm really excited uh, to talk pork, one of my favorite subjects, um, and with one of my very favorite guests of all time, Tom Philpott, uh, who many of you have heard before on this program. Tom is the food and agricultural correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. He is also the co-founder of Maverick Farms, a center for sustainable food education in Valley Cruces, North Carolina. He was formerly a columnist and editor for the online environmental site Grist, which you must look at if you don't already do so. And his work on food politics has appeared in Newsweek, Gastronomica, and The Guardian. Welcome, Tom, once again. It's been a big week in the meat industry, or I should say about a big 10 days or so in the meat industry. Um, You wrote a terrific article in uh, Mother Jones just recently, which is why, of course, we're talking about this now. Um, uh, tell us about what's going on with uh, Cargill, which is going to be their pork production is going to be acquired by JBS. So tell us all about that. Right. So I guess just before the 4th of July holiday, um, JBS announced that it had spent $1.4 billion to mm. buy the pork operations of Cargill. Um, and so these are two, you know, gigantic agribusiness companies. Gigantic. Um, and both. Yeah, yeah, just massive. Uh, two of the biggest ones in the world. And yep. before the deal, Cargill had about 8.6% of the U.S. pork market. Mm-hmm. And JBS, through a, a, its Swift subsidiary, which it bought back in 2008, I think, yeah. has about 10.7% of the U.S. pork market. So when you combine the two companies up, you get a company that owns nearly 20% of the U.S. pork market, um, and so you know one of the things that happens here is you get a significant consolidation of, of, of an already very tightly uh, consolidated market. Right. So before the deal happened, the biggest four companies in the market, which are Smithfield, Tyson, J, you know JBS, and Cargill, they owned about 63 percent. Am I doing the math right here? Yes, I think so. Sixty-three percent mm-hmm. or so of the pork market. After the deal, their share goes up to um, over 70%. Wow. And so, you know, it's already very tightly consolidated, and now, um, you know, a much bigger piece of the pie is dominated by these top four. And by JBS. Yeah, right. Yeah. So JBS gets uh, about a fifth of it. Smithfield owns more than a quarter of it. So you're talking about very, very big companies. Yeah, and then Tyson, and I think you were saying in your article that Hormel slips into the fourth spot there. Yeah, Hormel uh, steps in. Hormel's got a little bit more than 8%, and mm-hmm. it was just lagging behind at number five, and now it's uh, solidly at number four. Right, and this is because of the consolidation of the two other players, JBS and Cargill. Right. Um, yeah, you're, you're taking a player out of an already very consolidated market. Yeah, 
I mean, I, okay, so why isn't this deal, I mean, given that they are now going to own nearly 20% of the pork market in the United States, why is it that there is no antitrust regulation? I mean, for instance, just to just to make a comparison, uh, Cisco, the big distribution company, uh, tried to acquire United Foods, number two in distribution in the United States, and the antitrust regulations prevented that merger. I'm not too familiar with that, why that deal didn't actually succeed or how it was that they would be so consolidated, but this doesn't seem so different to me. Why isn't antitrust regulation coming into play here? And will it be, I mean, the deal is not done until the attorney general signs off on it, correct? Right. Um, That's exactly right. Um, The thing about uh, what's happened in the United States about since the Reagan administration um, is that now antitrust authorities basically look at deals and they ask themselves the question, is this going to hurt consumers? Uh-huh. That is to say, are we going to create a massive company that has enough power in the market that it can, you know, sort of exert monopoly power and, you know, unilaterally raise the price right. of whatever good it is um, without competition? Um, and, and that's sort of, you know, that's, that's great. It's an important thing to look at. There's a second consideration that they also used to look at uh, before the Reagan administration, and that is, is it going to increase buyer power? And what that means is um, if uh, this company is going to have power to uh, exert downward pressure on prices that it pays its suppliers, mm-hmm. so not consumers, but suppliers. And in the case of the meat industry, the suppliers are farmers because uh, the pork industry is dominated by contract production, uh, almost all of it. There, you know, there is a significant amount of company-owned um, production of, uh, of of hogs, but the great majority of it is done by contracted farmers. Yeah, and uh, the question is, you know, the, one of the big questions that will be ignored here is, do this, will these remaining companies have have buyer power? And the answer, study after study, has shown even before this deal, the answer is yes. You know, when if you're a if you're a farmer, if you're a, a pork farmer, and you've bought into the sort of CAFO model of you know these big, um, you know, production houses where you've got hogs confined confined indoors, yeah, um, you would it's to your advantage to have several potential buyers, several potential people that you could, several potential companies that you could contract with. That's right. To slaughter your hogs. And in most markets, uh, you know, because of this consolidation, they've got very, very few, and there's just not a lot of competition between them. And so you, as a farmer, end up being a price taker. Uh And so under the Reagan administration, and I think every administration since then has basically followed this, that all you have to to show is that this isn't going to hurt consumers, that these companies aren't going to raise prices. And mm-hmm. I think what's happened in the American food industry is that these companies would love to be able to raise their prices, but there's so much consolidation in other parts of it. You know, basically, like, Walmart is a massive buyer in the retail space. Yeah. You have a few, um, you know, sort of food service companies that are massive buyers in those spaces. They don't have a lot of power to raise prices to consumers here. Yeah. So the, the model, the profit model, is to squeeze downward. So you squeeze farmers on price. Right. You squeeze workers at slaughterhouses, which, you know, one of the worst industries to work for is the pork industry. We've mm-hmm. seen that over and over again. Conditions in slaughterhouses are horrible. And so th- these are the companies, these companies are um, profiting by precisely from their ability to, uh, to squeeze their, their suppliers, whether it's labor, whether it's farmers, mm-hmm. and exert buyer power. And there's nothing in antitrust um, in the past three or so years that that puts a stop to it. I think this other deal that you're mentioning, I think um, the consolidation, this Cisco, this possible Cisco deal that got shot down, yeah. the consolidation was so intense because uh, it, it would have created one company that had some, I, I forget what the number was, but some huge share that they worried that they this company would be able to you know, screw its buyers, which were, you know, basically food service companies. Yeah. So they could say, look, you know, take it or leave it. This is what the price is. Right. And that's why they they rejected it. In this case, I think, um, you know, I cannot think of, you know, maybe your listeners will 
will chime in uh, and tell us if we're wrong. But I can't think of a major meat consolidation, a major meat deal in the past 25 or 30 years that's been shot down by antitrust authorities. <laughs> so they sat idly by while this has happened, and so it would be quite shocking for, it to, uh, for them to step in now. I would be very surprised if somebody steps in now, but, um, you know, let's try to be optimistic. I mean, but the question for me also is, why is JBS acquiring so many companies? I mean, not only did they just offer to put down $1.45 billion, billion, by the way, folks, billion with a B, uh, for the Cargill Holdings, um, but they also, only a week or two before that offer was on the table, they purchased Marfrig Poultry, which is, and they own Pilgrim's Pride as well, um, yeah. which was one yeah. of our biggest poultry companies. And so now they own Marfrig, which I think is a, was a British company. Am I wrong in that? Um, but uh, in any case, they're now one of the largest poultry suppliers in the world. And I'm well, curious uh, if you have any insight into why, you know, why is JBS and their, believe me, their share price is like <laughs> through the roof as a result of these acquisitions. Um, but why are they, why are they doing this? Like, it seems to me there's quite a bit of exposure to risk in buying so many um, meat production companies all at once. And also in, a, in at least in the United States where meat consumption is going down. What, what, yeah, is, well, what think, are the larger picture? What's I, I the larger picture? Yeah, so JBS is a Brazilian company. Mm-hmm. And Brazil has emerged in the past 25 years as an industrial agriculture juggernaut. Yeah. And the, the idea in Brazil has been that we are going to be massive, massive net food exporters. And so they are growing, you know, as you well know, huge amounts of soybeans. Yes. Um, a, a very good amount of corn. I think they have surpassed or are about tied the U.S. in as the number one producer of soybeans in the world. Yes. And they've got this massive uh, bit of land called Mato Grosso, which is a um, it is a savanna, um, and it's you know way less publicized than the than the rainforest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very biodiverse region, and they you know it's huge. I think it, I think it's true that it's. You know, nearly as big as the continental U.S. Wow, this, this region. Holy smokes! And I didn't they know just that. they just keep putting it under the plow, and there's plenty more to go. And so they they're doing this strategy of we are going to be a powerhouse in agriculture, and meat is a big part of it. You know, they're massive beef producers, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think so. The whole model there is export, 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 and JBS is right in the center of that. Mm. And so they are. You know, they're not thinking about, hey, we're going to dominate meat production and consumption in Brazil. They they want they want a, the, the whole global uh, market to be their purview. Yes. And you know, the thing about it is that if you think about uh, meat meat consumption, it's uh, it's going down or holding steady in the developed world, but rising very rapidly in the emerging market world. Yes, and, uh, and so that is exactly where JBS is focused in places like you know uh, supplying places like China, Southeast Asia, sure. um, places like that where you've got a, a growing middle class. And that you know that brings us to the question that I think is really interesting: Why the U.S. Right? Why are they buying up all the stuff in the U.S.? Yes, I am curious about that. Well, you know, so. I put this in my article, the way that uh, per capita meat consumption in the U.S. has actually been falling for a few years now. Yeah. And if you're, if you're a publicly traded company and you look at a market, a domestic market, where the, uh, you know, basically it's not even growing as fast as population, is mm-hmm. shrinking compared to population, then it's not a very exciting market, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's not growing at all. And so what you're doing is competing with other companies within that market. And, you know, that's not something you can bring to your shareholders and say, hey, you know, um, U.S. meat <laughs> consumption is falling, but we're going to get a bigger market share. You know, we're going to steal market share from our competitors, and that's how we're going to grow. That's not a very compelling message. And so what the industry has done is focused, and this is true in all segments of the industry, not just pork, they focused uh, a lot of attention on exports. Yeah. And so... Um, the idea is, yeah, you know, the U.S. market is big, it's lucrative, but it's shrinking. Let's go to China, where per capita meat consumption is, I think, still about half the U.S. level, but it's rising fast. Mm. 
And so there's this big, big push uh, to, to export. And the U.S., it turns out, is a very low-cost producer because of our, you know, pretty lax environmental regulations, right. because of the way that the meat industry has been deunionized and it's become this very low-wage, uh, like slaughterhouse jobs are very low-wage. Um, it's become this, attra- and, you know, it's a lot of uh, powerful politicians are... Uh, really into it. It's got a great lobbying base. Oh yeah. You know, to keep these conditions in place, um, it becomes a great place to uh, to invest. Um, and so, when JBS bought Pilgrim's Pride, when it bought Swift a few years ago, and now with this uh, this Cargill deal, it is looking at exports. It is looking at the global market. The U.S. is a base to get to those global markets. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was reading up when, you know, preparing for the show, <clears throat> excuse me, I, of course, looked for press releases uh, for the National Pork Producers Council, always a source of great information about what's happening in the industry. And I picked up this quote, um, which really su- surprised me. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal that is being worked on in yeah. secret uh, in after the break. But um, I just wanted to bring this one thing up, which was a quote, and this is a quote from the NPPC um, uh, uh, press release. According to Iowa State University economist Dermot Hayes, the TPP, Trans-Pacific partnership deal would be the most significant commercial opportunity ever for U.S. pork producers, generating more than 10,000 pork industry jobs. Now, I really had pause for that because like what I don't see how it's going to generate 10,000 pork industry jobs unless they're planning on um, expanding exponentially in the number of sows and number of plants, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't I'm not sure that's going to happen. Do you think that will happen? Well, I mean, I think those kinds of studies are always a little bit overblown. You know, the industry is, you know, sort of funds a study like that with the idea of... Um, Persuading congressmen. About, <laughs> yeah, it's about making the TPP about jobs, which I think is, yes. uh, is of course, uh, probably pretty specious. But the idea, the sort of uh, thing that they're really hinting at there is that a lot of the countries that would be in the TPP, in Southeast Asia particularly... Uh, also including Japan, mm-hmm. they've got uh, protective measures in place to protect their own domestic meat producers. Yeah. And I think pork pork is really big over there, and I yeah. think uh, there's a, particularly uh, protections for, for pork producers. And the industry is, you know, licking its chops, so to speak, <laughs> at the idea of bringing those down. And, you know, basically being able to flood those markets with cheap U.S. pork. With very cheap pork. And I, yeah. I looked at that same quote um, or that same uh, press release from the mm-hmm. MPPC, and, you know, they're talking about, you know, ex- exponential growth in exports being sort of unleashed. Oh, yeah, I have a quote for you that I have that quote, which and we're going to talk about it in a minute. But but pork, uh, since we began using these bilateral trade agreements, pork has increased one thousand five hundred and fifty percent in value and one thousand two hundred and sixty eight percent in volume. I mean, what a windfall for these guys. Right. Astonishing. Right. I mean, I. I looked at USDA stats. I went into the USDA GATS database mm-hmm. and um, made up a chart in my piece. And, um, you know, in 2000, uh, pork exports were close to zero. It just was not something really? that we were doing a lot of exporting of. Uh-huh. And um, and one of the things was that there was a huge controversy in NAFTA around uh, U.S. pork going south to Mexico. Right. That t- took a few years to solve, and then, you know, basically it was open season. Yeah. So, you know, you look at my you look at my chart and you go from from, you know, pretty close to zero, like eighty one thousand metric tons in two thousand to two million metric tons Holy uh, by looks like around two thousand ten that threshold is crossed. So that's massive growth. Right. But if you look at the chart, um it begins to level off a little bit above that level. Um, uh-huh. you know, starting around uh 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. And so the industry is going, okay, we have emerged as this massive pork exporter, um, the biggest pork exporter in the world, but the growth has leveled off. Because we have trade barriers and, with these Pacific yeah, Rim countries. We, <laughs> yeah. Well, then we get back to that whole problem of how do you tell shareholders that 
we've got this high level of exports, but it's not growing very fast. Well, we've got to move that chart. We have to get that chart pointing back upwards, and I think that's the push for TPP. Absolutely. Well, let's let's take a short break here, Tom, um, and then we'll we'll do a sponsor drop, and then we'll come right back and talk more about TPP and uh, the impact of uh, what that's going to mean for American agriculture and American consumers. So stay with us, folks. Tom Philpott will be right back. Chris Howell from Kane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Kane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're talking about the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership deal that we are uh, negotiating currently in Congress, or rather Obama and his his people are negotiating with the other member countries, um, and also the impact of the merger, or rather the acquisition of Cargill Pork uh, by JBS in Brazil. And <clears throat> as we were talking about before the break, Tom, um, the um, and did I say my guest is Tom Philpot? Did I say that, Tom? I hope I said that. I think so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, it's just a slight senior moment there. Um, but so as we were talking about um, earlier, you know, the the you you had that interesting statistic or the chart that you had made up for your excellent article in Mother Jones this past uh, week. Um, by the way, you got a great compliment from Barry Esterbrook about that. I had lunch with him the other day out at uh, DeBraga and Spitler. We were talking about you. I hope your ears were burning. Um, we were, we were yodeling your praises, darling. Yodeling. <laughs> but anyway. Well, fully mutual in all, in all directions. <laughs> anyway, to go back to the, the business at hand. Um, so we were, you know, we were quoting the um, sort of the, the exports being almost nothing in 2000 versus, uh, you know, several million metric tons by 2010, and then it's leveling off again. Um, I, I wanted you to um, to uh, put into perspective, and then also those astonishing figures from the from the actual NPC, PPC uh, trade release talking about the, the 1,268% increase in volume of our, um, yeah. of our exports. And I wanted to see if you could put sort of a timeline, um, or rather a perspective on the growth of the consolidation and concentration of pork production or meat production in general um, since those trade agreements began um, shaping the way our meat industry has grown in the last two decades? Because I, I think there is, you know, there, I, I want to kind of point out, like, where did those those CAFOs didn't come out of nowhere? Um, the chickenization of, uh, of the pork industry, I think, is relatively new, I think, within the last 15, 20 years. And I, I was hoping you yeah. could shed a little more light on that. I think that's a, a great, great question, um, and I think that the, the way the way the process, the, the way the consolidation process begins, it is kind of all based on on trade a little bit. Because if you think about when the sort of the real capitalization of 
the American meat supply really sort of takes off. It's in the early 70s. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, what happens is you get this, um, there's this idea that, you know, we're going to move away from the old farm policies of the, of the New Deal that kind of basically tried to manage the price of corn, you know, of commodities like corn and soybeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, manage them in a way that they're, you know, profitable for farmers but not too expensive to consumers. And we're going to take those programs away, and um, we're going to, you know, th- those programs are often about slowing down production. Like, let's not produce too much because it's going to make the price drop. It'll depress the price, yeah. Be bad for farmers. <clears throat> but we're going to take away those controls, and uh, we're going to tell you to produce as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And don't worry about prices dropping because we're going to find export markets for those corn and soybeans. And so there was that, you know, big, famous uh, uh, grain deal between the U.S. and, and the Soviet Union mm-hmm. in the early 70s. So the Soviet Union bought a huge, they were in a crisis, they had their own yeah. crisis of agriculture going on. They bought a huge amount of U.S. grain, and it made the price spike. And people our age remember, you know, where meat got really expensive in the United States because there was this huge yep. uh, spike in feed prices. And that caused people in the Midwest to... Uh, farmers in the Midwest, to just sort of invest in farming, uh, get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the idea was that Earl Butts, uh, you know, really sold this idea that Nixon's uh, USDA secretary had exports. We're going to export our way out of any price trouble. We will find markets for this stuff. So there was this big boom in corn and soybean production. And... Uh, you know, predictably, there was a big crash in prices because the Soviet Union, you know, didn't have the same crisis in the next couple of growing seasons. Right. They then recovered. Didn't have demand, our yeah. demand for our corn and soybeans. So suddenly you've got all of this corn and soybeans coming out, and the price plunges. And, of course, you get the farm crisis and the farmer suicide problem of the 80s. But you also get, you're just washed in cheap corn and soybeans. And so it made sense to, you know, basically take these corn and soybeans and confine animals and just feed them corn and soybeans. And so that, that's kind of how it starts. There's mm-hmm. this, this surplus of corn and soybeans. And so if you're, if you're a farmer, you're thinking, why should I sell this stuff at a tiny price when I could feed it to, uh, to pigs and they can walk off my farm? Um, you know, I can sell it in the form of pigs instead of in the form of corn and soybeans right. to get a better price. And so you get this move to, um, you know, um, bigger and bigger farms, uh, hog farms, and you get people specializing. You know, it used to be everyone had corn, soy, and hogs, and suddenly you've got people just specializing in one or the other. Yeah. And so, and so that's happening. And, um, and you know, you get, you know, you, you, you get the U.S. public continuing to eat more meat, and you get this kind of growing market. Um, you get fast food you also. Get you get the rise of fast food, fast which must food have had a huge impact on this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then the processors are responding to this by, you know, with the, the processor agenda at this point is uh, breaking the unions. So they go into mm-hmm. union breaking mode uh, with the, the Hormel situation in Minnesota being the most famous example where right. they literally started a new company. Um, in order to avoid hiring union workers, it was called quality pork producers. Yes. So they, they start a new company, um, hire all non-union workers, mostly Mexican immigrants, and the, the destruction of the unions uh, is in place, and that's driving down labor costs for those companies. And so they're starting to consolidate and, um, and, eat, and sort of bigger companies, small, swallowing littler companies, starting in the 80s and 90s. Right. And then the whole question comes back to exports. And like I said, by 2000, there's very little pork exporting. Yeah. They're producing all this cheap pork. You can only sell so much of it right. uh, in the U.S. U.S. appetite is only so great. And so now it comes time to look for a foreign market to sort of hold uh, Earl Butts to his promise that we're going to export our way out of this. And so the meat industry was very enthusiastic about NAFTA in the early 90s. Yes. And, uh, and they are and very happened. enthusiastic about the TPP, as we have and seen. And they're very enthusiastic about the TPP today. And every trade agreement between those two, the Central American one, the one with Korea, um, they, uh, they love these trade agreements because it, uh, it basically disempowers countries from 
uh, running their own meat, uh, you know, from, from supporting their own meat farmers. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you get these farmers that you get farmers in these countries like Mexico that are competing with American farmers who are getting, you know, subsidized until very recently, subsidized corn and soybeans. Yeah. So it's not a very fair playing field. No. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Like, if you're, if you're in the American hog farming business, like, who's, you know, with only a few players in it, I, I'm going to ask the obvious question. Who's getting rich and who's getting broken, you know? I mean, if we have increased yeah, the value well, and the volume of meat production so much, like, what has actually happened to American meat production? It's, it's all gone into these four big companies, am I right? And the niche yeah, producer... Yeah, so I mean, much. of course there is this whole alternative thing happening where you're finally getting investment in, in small slaughterhouses and in, you know, place, places like where around you are in New York City and yeah. where I am down here in Austin, Texas. You get people um, doing pastured pork and selling directly to consumers, and that that's happening and growing. And it's yeah. kind of apart from this other trend of this hyper consolidation. And if you know, if you're one of these farmers, you've invested uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in these facilities. Absolutely, and you've, got this, and you've taken out you've some big ass loans to do that. <laughs> yeah, and you got this sunk cost. And so, you know, someone like me comes around and says, hey, why don't you cut these, put your, your pigs, why don't you, like, slice your herd down by 90%, put the rest out to pasture, uh, save a little bit on feed costs, and get a better, um, a, a better price in the market. And that sounds ridiculous because they yeah. owe, you know, maybe a million dollars, yeah. half a million dollars on their, their facility. And so they try to push that asset to the to the hill, and they get into this sort of debt spiral. Yeah. Um, uh, and then meanwhile, you also get players, you get people that that really scale up. I mean, one of the one response, if there's four big buyers and there's one big buyer in your area maybe, then one response is that you get really big yourself. Mm-hmm. And maybe you make a few, just a little bit on each pig, but if you have a million pigs, then, you know, maybe you do okay. Right. That has, that has been one response, that you do have very big um, companies that, you know, they're not on the size of Smithfield or JBS, but they're big entities that produce a whole lot of hogs that they then sell to JBS or Smithfield and, um, and make a decent mo- bit of money that way. But uh, but the sort of family farmer uh, completely loses out. Unless you're willing to take on the risk to get that big, mm-hmm. it's pretty much a losing proposition and only gets more so with this deal. Yeah, absolutely. And and let's talk. Let's move to another aspect of this deal because if it does go through, um, which it almost certainly will, um, you know, we've been talking about who the big four are, and now they're going to be, you know, Smithfield and JBS, uh, Tyson, and um, who else? Who Hormel. Hormel. <clears throat> but we have now we have Smithfield, which is owned by a Chinese company, not Shuanghui, but they I think they sold to another yet another company um, about a year ago. But uh, and then okay. JBS is Brazilian. So now we have two of the biggest pork producers in this country um, sell owned by foreign nationals. And what yeah. does that have an impact on American food security, for example? Should we be worried about that or or is it just, you know, business as usual amongst the multinationals and why do we care? Why should we care? Right. Well, I mean, I think you know, you're talking about now the, the two biggest companies and that, they make up about um 45%, more than 45% of U.S. hard production, or pork yeah. production, I should say, is now controlled by two foreign companies. Right. Um, Smithfield and, and, and JBS. And I don't think there's any jingoistic reasons to, to be concerned, but what I do think is something to be concerned about is the fact that there's a lot of people in America now who are making the decision to eat less meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're making the decision for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons is they read stuff about the sort of pollution from these CAFOs. They read about the labor conditions in, yeah. these, in these sort of factory slaughterhouses, and they say, okay, I don't want to participate in that. I want to lower pressure on that. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go vegetarian, but I'm just going to eat less meat, and maybe when I do eat meat, I'm going to choose it carefully and you know, learn something about the production right. process. So you get this thing happening. But 
if production is geared to exports, then that activity, as great as it is, isn't going to make any difference because right. your decision as a consumer or the entire public combined decision as consumers to eat less meat will not translate into a smaller footprint in this industry because they are they don't care anymore about no. your business and they are pushing out to foreign to foreign lands so consumers That's in right. China or that are you know very distant from this situation um, are have uh, more of a say in the, the industry's footprint size in the United States right that that to me is a problem and um and then of course I agree what they're able to do is you know, as they, they gain market share and they gain, you know, economic power, they invest some of their uh, profits in lobbying. Mm-hmm. And in their lobbying efforts, they're pushing to keep the labor labor laws pretty lax, you know, right. environmental laws pretty keep lax. Keep immigration in limbo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Regulation yeah. in limbo. <clears throat> and uh, and so, so that, I think, is what the... And that's the problem with the, this whole export model, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that just the... the, the the important thing to realize from the Brazil and the Chinese move into U.S. pork production is that it's a very attractive play if you're trying to benefit from um, rising meat consumption in China and mm-hmm. other parts of Asia. It's a very it's a very attractive play, um, and I think we should think about: Do we want to be the hog farmer to the world? Do we want to be the low right. cost producer of the sort of cheap CAFO? Uh, pork to the world, and what do we get out of it besides exactly. bad jobs? You know, these 10,000 jobs that they materialize, mm-hmm. what kind of jobs are they going to be? Yeah, they're going to be uh, horrible jobs bad, that are underpaid and, and filled by undocumented workers who are essentially, right. in, you know, interned uh, labor. No, it's yeah, it's an astonishing right. thing, and 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 to I mean, because we don't have too 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 much time, and I I just wanted to move along to this thing about how one of the things that I read, you know, again, um, from the National Pork Producer Council's um, you know press room is they designated the vote on uh, fast tracking the trade agreement, which was called TPA, as a key quote unquote key vote, meaning that their constituency would be recording who voted for or who voted against this as ammo, you know, ammunition in future elections. So I guess yeah. what you know to to build upon. What you were saying about losing uh, our control as consumers, because as these as these foreign companies come in, they use our infrastructure, uh, they pollute our waterways and our and our land, et cetera, et cetera. All of this money goes out of our country um, because it doesn't belong here in the first place, since they're either a Chinese right. or a Brazilian company, and 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 so and and because they don't care what consumers think, and uh, then we lose our our buying power, our our power of the fork, as it were. And so then where, where is our lobbying? I mean, I want to spend the rest of this program talking about right. where is our lobby? What are we doing as consumers uh, to signal to our elected officials that this kind of wholesale selling of American infrastructure, essentially, um, is, is no longer an acceptable uh, you know, playing field? It's just we can't keep giving away our, our stuff. <laughs> In the yeah, interests of these of these large companies, question. you know. Yeah, it's a critical question, and if you think about people in this, what we might call the sustainable food movement, yeah, they have a tendency, I think, to tune out this kind of stuff. Yeah, because they're like, why should I care about this, these machinations, these gigantic these, pork companies who right. never eat that pork? And, and transatlantic yeah, trade deals. Myself in a grocery right. store. I never go to a restaurant that served it. I'm buying, you know, I'm getting pastured pork from the Hudson Valley if I'm in right. uh, New York City. Why, why should I care about this? And I think that attitude just gives these companies so so much power. I and think. I do think that, and you know, like as you know from following my work, I've been obsessing about this stuff since I first started writing about. Food politics in 2005. Yeah. Like I got I, I return to it over and over again because I think it's so important. Absolutely. Um, on the lobbying front, Environmental Working Group did start something um, to do exactly what you're talking about to create it to create an agenda to create actual lobbyists and to um, to push on these very kinds of issues. Like I think the issues 
to push at, um, you know, definitely antitrust. Like, let's get some enforcement of antitrust in there. Yeah. Um, let's get some enforcement of, uh, of the environmental. Clean Water Act yeah. around these factory farms, which, um, because they're considered non-point sources of pollution, they're basically exempt from the Clean Water Act. Um, they also have exemptions from air pollution requirements, especially hog, hog CAFOs. Yes. And these are all de facto subsidies. These are all de facto. These are these companies uh, not paying their bills, not taking care of their messes, and putting, putting them off on society. And so the Environmental Working Group, I'm actually, as we're speaking, trying to Google the name of their, their project. Uh, and they've got... Um, is that a celebrity chef involved? Um, you mean besides Tom Colicchio? Tom Colicchio is, is he should Tom be. Tom Colicchio is exactly who I'm speaking of. Yeah. Speaking of. Because he, he's, he's the only great... one, as far as I can tell, he's the only guy who speaks on a legislative level and who speaks on a global level. Um, you know, everybody else is all worried about whether or not they're buying their locally sourced blah, blah, blah. And, I, you know, I love it. It's great. It's cool. But, you know, like you, I'm more worried about the macro than I am the micro. Yeah. And, I, you know, I find these like, I mean, you've written a lot about what happened in Toledo last summer with the pollution from the, you know, the yeah. downwash from the dairy farms in Ohio. And the same thing in Des Moines, again, last year, uh, they've actually brought several lawsuits, um, the city yeah. of Des Moines, against various agricultural enterprises because of the, the pollution of their water. And, you know, I just, and they don't get any, I'm not I'm I'm not seeing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, and um, or, or add to this, Tom. But who, you know, what, who on the federal level is helping these guys out? Like, I mean, they they talk about states' rights, but the states are being trampled by these, yeah. you know, agricultural conglomerates who are not accountable. And well, you know, I, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I, that, that was it. Just well, the I lack of accountability drives me nuts. I don't appreciate everything the Environmental Working Group does. I, I have a a couple of problems with them, but in general, they are the group that I can think of that's been most savvy about taking on these fights and about, I mean, they, they've put out scorecards, you know, they don't know the, mm -hmm. the whole lobbying or the whole sort of political pressure tactic of putting out scorecards on Congress people for how they vote on, on food issues. And I think that's Super smart and important. Yes, and I just did a piece uh, for the for the Mother Jones magazine. It will run. You know, I think it publishes in a couple of weeks uh -huh. um, about the situation in Iowa and Des Moines, where the, you've got these heightened nitrate levels going into the water, and the mm -hmm. city of Des Moines paying huge amounts of money to clean them up. And they're, they're just saying enough. And it is coming from hog farms as well as corn and soy farms. Yeah, and they're they're saying enough. And what they're doing is they are suing. The counties above them um, to to be regulated under the Clean Water Act, right? And that's all they're doing. They're they're not saying give us damages or anything. They're saying these guys need to be regulated under the Clean Water Act. They need to measure their um, their the output of their um, of nitrates in their in their farms and stop it, control it, figure out a way to control it. Right. And EWG Environmental Working Group has been just a great ally to them. Um, and they were a great source for me in the story. Uh -huh. um, so that is a group, I think, that people should Google and look up and see what they're up to. Yeah. And they're involved with Tom Colicchio. Tom Colicchio is, you know, I interviewed him uh, about a year ago, and I was expecting, you know, I don't really watch TV, so I don't really know about his TV shows. Right. And, you know, I never really ended his restaurants in New York. Didn't really know that much about him. And I was blown away by how articulate and sophisticated he's he is in these issues. Extremely savvy. And, you know, he, yeah, yeah. He's, and he's and, you know he's involved with them. He's one of their their main spokespeople. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think this is the uh, this is what you're talking about, Katie. This is yes. the one effort where people are organizing and saying we need a counter lobby. We need to we need a lobby that knows how to how to play the rules play by the play by this DC rules. Mm -hmm. Now the other group is. The uh, Center for Sustainable, uh, the National <clears throat> Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, NSAC. If you, uh, oh, I've never even them, heard of them. Send me that link, will you? Fantastic. National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, yeah. NSAC. And their um, their policy director is this guy named Ferd Hofner, and he has been in the trenches of Washington 
farm policy since the 70s. Cool. Intimately, intimately involved with every farm bill since the you know 1976 one or something like that. And uh, and they're just really really good. You know, whenever you hear about some kind of fight going on in Congress, whether it's some kind of Monsanto rider or you know anything like that happening, or the farm bill, up to the farm bill, NSAC is intimately involved, trying to push it in the right direction. They're not very good at uh, publicizing themselves. Yeah, they're doing the sort of behind the scenes work in Washington. So I would say those two groups, Environmental Working Group and NSAC, are two groups to look at and mm. maybe get on the show sometime. I'm definitely going to invite them on my show. I, the Environmental Working Group I'm really familiar with, and I, I have looked at a lot of their policy papers and stuff. Um, I, what I notice about them is that the mainstream media, whenever they describe, um, you know, whenever there's a quote in which uh, one of these sort of battles comes up and they are included with, uh, say, the quote from a senator or a congressman or whatever, um, somehow their efforts are always uh, denigrated in a sort of interesting way, and that's by the mainstream media. I mean, it's not even just... It's not even just like, you know, a Republican senator on the Agricultural Committee saying, oh, those environmental working people, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, I mean, and and there's also, you know, Natural Resources Defense Council. I mean, there are great groups, Food and Water Watch. I mean, it's I don't mean to say that there aren't great groups out there that are doing, you know, the heavy lifting on this. But I do find it frustrating that there isn't more of a sort of educational aspect to the consumer at large to understand these. I, I get it. They're complex issues. But uh, they're not so complex that the average, you know, person cannot grasp them if they want to spend more than, you know, a nanosecond thinking about it. I mean, if I can figure it out, yeah. everybody else can too. I am just not that smart. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, me too. I feel the same way. If I can figure it out, then it's not that you hard. You know, it's really but, not that hard. And it's so important to our future. And it has such an impact on not just our agricultural, uh, you know, picture, but also, you know, when you were talking about like how we want to sell, you know, our cheap hogs into uh, companies when I think about Vietnam where every farmer has his own pigs. Like I would just yeah. die to think that that culture would go away, you know? And, oh, yeah. And that those and that, that delicious... Is exactly what's being targeted. Exactly. And, um, you know, China has done that uh, itself very, very consciously yes. in the past 20 years. It has said that we are, we're going to eliminate backyard hog production. Right. Which goes back uh, I would I, I think millennia in China. Absolutely, it goes way, way deep in the, into into their into culture. China, yeah, yeah. We're going to eliminate that, and we're going to impose this factory model. And so, before the Smith deal, by there's already this massive effort afoot in China to industrialize and scale up hog production there. Yeah, and they just reached a point, and they said, you know what, um, we can't do this, we can't get very much bigger, we don't have very much land for this, um, right. our ability to produce corn and soy is limited, yeah. we're already buying huge amounts of it on the mar- on the open market, let's start bringing in hogs too, and um, and so they started importing a bunch of, uh, of pork, and then logical, logical uh, next step was, well, let's buy the biggest U.S. pork producer, <laughs> right. and so we'll not only get their technology and their knowledge for our domestic stuff, but we'll also have this, you know, this perfect base that we can export um, pork into China That's uh, whenever right. we need it. With, and, and with no tariffs. Um, Tom, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up here. Uh, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It was really an interesting conversation, and, and you really helped me understand a lot of the issues. And, and we'll, we'll talk again soon, I know. Um, I want to say thank you to The Landing for my break music, which I really loved, and, of course, to Kane Winery for sponsoring me, as always. Um, listen to us on iTunes or Stitcher. Leave a review about the show. Um, and then next up, you're going to hear a clip of Francis Malman, the wonderful Argentine chef. Thanks so much for listening, folks, and we'll see you in a week or so. You know, I think there there is this sort of idea that cooking with fire has to do with the summer and a beautiful day. And I think it has a lot to do with winter, you know. Renowned Argentine chef Francis Malman, owner of 1884 Patagonia Sur and Garzon, will leave you desperate for heat. Tune in to hear him wax poetic words about the gentle nature of fire and his passion for the flame. Episode 215 of The Food Scene dives into the fiery world of Chef Francis Malman as he describes his back-to-basics cooking ideology. I love to be out in the rain 
you may make yourself a little shelter for it. I love to cook in the snow. We do it a lot, you know. It's so, so romantic. And I, I just did last year, I did a TV series of 10 shows of cooking in snowstorms. Not only in the snow, but in the storm. Uh, so what I was trying to teach people is how to read the storm, how to get a little shelter, how to start your fire, obviously with no gasoline or anything, just with little sticks, little branches that sort of hang in the trees. And then the other thing is that it's there's this idea that cooking with fires is sort of a male thing, you know, and it's a rough thing. And, and, and I, I really... I really think and I believe that fire is an extremely tender thing and feminine, very fragile, you know, because it can crack the way you're cooking something very fast if you are not really looking into it and you're not very aware of temperatures and wind and so on. So it's, it's a silent language. It's a beautiful language and... It's simple, but you need quite a bit of knowledge, and the only way to learn it is to, to practice, you know. I think that maybe the first step is just to burn a big fire in your backyard on your own and sit in a chair and, and, and see what happens as it burns down. You know, and you will see all the stages. You will see the flame, you will see the charcoals, and then the ashes. And those three elements uh, we use a lot for cooking. We use the ashes, we use the coals, and the flames. Got your fire burning? To hear more secrets and stories from chefs around the globe, tune into The Food Scene with Michael Harlan Turkel every Tuesday at 3 p.m. This episode was brought to you by the ICC. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 